Hello, Cinefans. I'm Kendall Kruver, and this is Watching Classic Movies. Film critic Odie Henderson has applied his vast film knowledge and solid storytelling skills to the writing of an excellent new book, Black Caesars and Foxy Cleopatras, A History of Black Exploitation Cinema. We discuss the stars, creators, triumphs, and key films of this rich period in cinematic history. Welcome, Odie. Thank you for joining me today. I love this book. Thank you so much. Thank you for reading it, and thank you for having me. Um, you're the first podcast that I'm yeah. on for the book. Oh, wow. Well, that's an honor. And, I, I, you know, it's funny because I felt like I was taking so long reading this book because I kept stopping to check things. There's just so much, you know, music, films to look up. I was even like... It's been a long time since I've heard the Jefferson's theme song. I'm going to go listen to that. You know, it took a long time, but it was it was great to remember things and to be introduced to new things, too. And doing that and getting like the full contours of your book and the many different kinds of films that you had in there. I wondered if maybe I was a little off with my definition of black exploitation. I'd always thought of it as being exploitation films featuring black artists. But I wondered now if it is it more exploitation because it features it exploits the fact that there are black people in it as a selling point what is your definition of black exploitation it's interesting because a lot of people have different definitions even my own definition took a little bit of a slight bend when i i talked to elvis mitchell who had done a documentary on black exploitation called is that black enough for you i interviewed him for the boston globe and i've known elvis for quite a while and what was interesting to me is that there is a definition slippery I think the general definition is that it's an, a certain kind of movie that has Black characters in it that caters to what I guess we refer to as an exploitation model. Exploitation, the silly suffix that follows a lot of prefixes, they, it, in terms of exploitation, which you have, you know, exploitation movies which are running in parallel to Black exploitation films about truckers like White Line Fever. You have hack exploitation movies like Whatever Happened to Baby Jane. You have, you know, non-exploitation movies, and they all have something in common. They're all kind of, in a way, catering to, and I don't mean to sound this in a negative way, a baser instinct of filmgoer, that, that you're expecting it. A lot of times, like with horror and other things that have an allegory, these movies get you in with the salacious material, and they throw a message at you. Yes. They, they feed, you know, Samuel Goldwyn, I believe, famously said, about movies, if you want to send a message called Western Union. And I think movies that want to beat you over the head with a message are like broccoli. And I like broccoli, but they're like vegetables you don't want to eat. So let's throw in some, you know, salaciousness. We give you an anti-drug message, but we're going to have topless women and killing in this. But for me, it was a little bit more expansive because there are movies I talk about in the book that are in the era of exploitation, but would not necessarily be a exploitation film per se. So I described it in the book, I took it away from like what I being something specific. And I talked about the way I talk about film noir and that film noir caters to a specific type of movie that you might be expecting, like double indemnity, for example. But it's also in my mind an error. And some of these movies may be tangentially or on the cusp of, say, film noir right. because of the era they came out in. It may have elements of film noir, it may not technically be fully film noir. Same thing with Blasphemation. Now, Claudine is not, in my mind, a Blasphemation movie outright, but it has some elements of, you know, she's a working class person. You know, there's no rich people in Blasphemation. If they are rich, they got their money not from 
daddy or from stocks. Mm-hmm. So, but it's still part of the era. And it also was in a way counter-programming. So I tried to include movies I wanted to write about from that era that may not necessarily be a totally the specific explanation of blast mutation, but I see it as an era. Yeah. I don't just see it as a genre because it's a little bit too weaselly to hammer it in and say, this is definitive. Same thing with noir, you know, we're not shy. Eddie Muller, who was the czar of noir, I asked him once, what was the first film noir and when did film noir technically end? And everybody has a different answer. I think the same thing is with blast mutation. In terms of types of movies, we know when it ended, but in terms of types of movies, what does it go in? So, so I see it more of an, an error than a genre. I agree. I, I was, and I think of it as for Black folks, it is like the studio era. It's when it, it's it's got a similar flavor of where, where there's just all these supremely talented people exploding, you know, great personalities, great style of movies. I, I mean, we're both classic film fans it, it makes me think a little bit of the of the pre-code era where there were people right. tis, tisking it but you, a lot of those folks you wondered if maybe they were actually secretly enjoying what was going on because it it, it gave them what they really wanted to see the difference is the the pre-code a lot of times at some points you know the woman will say oh no i want to be married to you i'm tired of having all this sex and having fun whereas something you mentioned in the book is there's a feeling of getting away with it right that you got away that, that not getting away with the crime per se but getting away in general so yeah. <clears throat> melvin van peebles when he did sweet sweet back he said that at the movie theater everybody with the predominantly black audience because he forewalled it i think initially they expected that his character was going to die at the end of the movie because you know he was running from the man and you don't win unless you're Sidney poitier you don't win back then in the studio says more you know shot so everyone expected sweet sweet back to not get away and he gets away yeah and so that was kind of the thing like that was a surprise that for a change the hero doesn't get gunned down he gets away and i think there's something to be said about that you you know i mentioned that pam Greer had made a movie called hitman which is a remake of the, the michael kane film it'll come to me in a second uh get carter and she Get Carter, thank you. Yeah, it's based on the same book that Jack came home. And she gets she gets eaten by a mountain lion. And I said, that was the last time Pam Greer lost in a movie. Because after that, there was coffee. You know, so she was the hero. So all of a sudden now, you know, she's unkillable. You can't kill Pam Greer in a movie. The audience will not sit for it. Uh, so that was kind of the, the thing I was talking about. Even more so, you look at, I'll give a great example, Dirty Harry. I, I, I love the Dirty Harry movies, and I know I should be ashamed of myself, but I do. Um, you know, the first one is Albert Popwell. In fact, Albert Popwell was in four of the Dirty Harry movies. He plays a different character, but his most famous, he's at the other end of the gun when Clint Eastwood says, you know, do you feel lucky, punk? And you look at that character, and then you look at him later on, he's this black militant, I think, in The Enforcer. And this is in the, in the middle of Black Spitation era at this point, and you realize that now he's in power. He's not on the end of Clint Eastwood's gun. I would rather be the guy in power than being the guy, thug number three on Beretta, or being shot at by Clint Eastwood. You know, so that there's a whole different take of Black folks finding empowerment. There was a downside to it, I guess, in terms of some of the imagery that was presented. But, you know, you look at Willie Best and the Ghostbreakers, I think that's far worse than anything I saw on Blaxploitation. Right. You know, the whole era of, you know, coonery and that kind of thing. But you went to say something interesting at the pre-code era that I just wanted to touch base on. What I discovered 
you know, and I love all the old movies and the pre-code movies. When the Hayes Code came into effect, women, they became more verbal in terms of the, they had to generate their smarts through what they said, but everything else got toned down. So you couldn't have baby face. You couldn't have Barbara Stanwyck voluntarily sleeping her way to the top mm-hmm. uh, and getting away with it. <laughs> yeah, you couldn't getting do away that in with 1935 it. Because now all of a sudden women had to be a certain type of thing. You could be punished. But the biggest crime in my mind was what it did to the complexity of female characters. Now, the verbal, the dialogue became sharper and you had to get away with murder through words, through the smartness of Rosalind Russell saying, you know, this rapid fire dialogue is called Friday. Or, you know, Robert Stanley just being evil and double indemnity. It was less com- complex for a lot of women. Now you have to get married. Now you have to repent. Now, you know, Spencer Tracy gets to dress you down in, in, in what is it, desk set. You know, it's, that was always interesting to me. That it, the Hayes Code made things go backwards, whereas Black Mutation mm-hmm. made things go the opposite direction in terms of now Black people, they're the ones that are, you know, shooting the, the evil white folks. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you've got something like Sugar Hill where she, she takes care of what she needs to and she's just fine at the end. She's yes, fine. She's Revenge fine. is and- good for her. And deserving revenge, yes. you know? Yes. Yeah, it's, it's satisfying things like that. Um, and then there's mm-hmm. somebody like Pam Greer. I mean, you have to be smart in some way to make it in the film business. She's smart in all the ways, like, yes. you know, emotional intelligence, book smart, street smart, you know, spiritually. She has everything. And she could ride a horse. Yes, which we find out the story. In your, did, yeah, did no, you... and, and, and the story I, I mentioned, I, I retell the story from her book where she wasn't doing the arena with Mark and Markov. And she uh, was in Italy and she wound up riding onto Fellini's set, you know, in a horse. And Fellini's like says, you know, this big Afro-clad black woman, thick black woman running through his set on a horse. It's like his <laughs> dream, because you know, Fellini liked his thick girls. Um, so that that's that's pretty funny. But she, you know, she grew up in the West. A lot of people don't realize that you know, the black folks weren't just in the South. Like Gordon Parks, you know, he wrote The Learning Tree. That takes place in Kansas. Yeah. And Pam Greer grew up in Colorado. So she was familiar with all the outdoor stuff. She did all of her own stunts because she and Margaret Markoff did their own stunts because no one was big as, as tall as Margaret Markoff. And there were no black stunt women mm-hmm. back then. I always think of her as a cowgirl. I think she's got that spirit, that kind of frontier. Yeah, no, you know, I agree with bold, you. brave, and, and, and just knowing exactly what to do, kind of connected with the earth in a way, something like that. Right. Well, now we both saw her at the TCM Classic Film Festival, where she proudly comes into the, the press conference saying, I'm classic. Yes. And, and then there's a screening of Coffee. And I know that Coffee to you is a very important film when, when talking about this era. Right. And, and Coffee, here's what's interesting. When you have a movie like Cotton Comes to Harlem or, or Shaft or Superfly or Sweet Sweet Back for that message, it's men. Men are the heroes. Men get to be tough. Men get to fire the guns and, you know, get all the good lines. And women in these movies are, even if they're informants or they have provided information, they're kind of reduced to your typical woman role of, you know, being the, the, the main squeeze for the man or, or that evil woman that betrays you and, or victims. And Pam Greer, even in her movies that she did with, that were kind of the, the women's prison movies, like, like The Big Dolls and The Big Birdcage, she still has a sense of empowerment, but mm. she didn't. She was a supporting character, and with Coffee, now she's the main character. She's the person with the gun. She's the hero you're supposed to root for. 
And, and Coffee is one of the more ruthless blaspectation movies. It's incredibly violent. Um, and she's one of the meanest protagonists in blaspectation. And, and I think rightfully so, because this was women busting out of this. And then you have Cleopatra Jones coming out the same year, which is much milder yeah. movie. It's a PG rated movie, but it's still a big, tall, beautiful black woman with the finest clothes on and a gun mm-hmm. and exerting her power. And this was brand new. So when Pam Greer did it and it was a hit, suddenly you wanted to see more movies about women in power. What I love about noir is that even the women are, who are they're bad, maybe, but to me, I always found a woman that had power, had some agency to be interesting to me, far more interesting than some woman sitting around the house that's, you know, doing nothing. And that's the no, no, you know, slight on movies about that. But to me, I was always excited. Gadar said, oh, to make a good movie, all you need is a girl and a gun, right? Yes. And so, you know, you find that the Bride Wore Black at your phone movie, this kind of stuff, this is my jam. <laughs> so Pam Greer, as a kid, when I saw her, like my female cousins, they wanted to be Pam Greer because yes. she was power. And you didn't see black women in power anywhere, not on television, not in the movies. And if you did, it was very rare, where she just basically just kicked the doors off of this. And mm-hmm. after that, you had to rethink movies, black station movies, and had to rethink how they dealt with women in the movies. And it wasn't always positive, but you couldn't just, they wanted to, you know, Hollywood has an Achilles pocketbook, which is what Mel Van Peebles said. The movies are a success. They want to make 21 movies where there's a woman beating the hell out of people. Coffee was such a big deal to me as a kid because my mother has eight sisters. So I grew up in a very female oriented environment. There are men there, but the women were, they were the characters in my mind. They were the storytellers. They were brash. They were bold. They were profane. And to see that on the screen, was like, you know, Pam Greer may not have been like, she said that she was modeling her own aunties for Coffee and for Foxy Brown because one of her aunts was a nurse and Coffee's a nurse. Right. And one of her aunts was just like bad, you know, like, like mean and like just vengeful. That's what was channeling her Foxy Brown persona through. I saw my aunties in Pam Greer. My cousin saw power. My female cousin saw I can play Pam Greer and I don't have to be, you know, some docile victim that you see on, you know, on Kojak. Mm-hmm. I mean, when you think about her power, her influence. It's un- unfathomable, really. Yeah. And they let her, you know, Jack Hill, he loved her. He said she had it. He said, I'm going to put her on the screen and let her be as mean as possible. And whatever she wants to do, I'm going to let her do it because she holds your attention. Just, just looking at her, she holds your attention. This is something new. It's also something empowered her, her big Afro, her clothes, her statuesqueness, her, the way she carries herself, how she utters a line of dialogue. A lot of these things you see, and I, I make jokes about, you know, her, her afro has razors in it at one point, has a gun in it, another movie. And I, I, I wish my afro had been strong enough to hold that. <laughs> <laughs> it's like you have it your lip barely, gloss in there too. And, yes, you know. it could barely hold, you know, the afro pick in my head back when I was a kid. It's such a thin afro. <laughs> the construction, the construction. So. Now, another one that you and now coffee, like, you know, this and Pam Greer and what that meant too. that's an important film in black exploitation era. And another one that we have to get to is Superfly for so many reasons. Superfly is I, I called it the citizen cane of black exploitation in my book. 
And I have a lot of mixed feelings about Superfly. I think it's one of the movies I'm most conflicted about of the era. I think it's the best written movie of the Black Station era. I think it's the best acted movie, despite there being some very bad acting by a couple of people in it. What's interesting about Superfly, and this is missing from the remake, which I thought was okay. What's missing from the remake, and maybe this is a 70s thing, is that the Superfly is a very amoral picture because it forces you to pick a side with a character who basically is destroying the neighborhood yeah, for his own gain. Now, he tells you early on in the movie that he has $300,000, he and, and, and Eddie, the Carl Lee character, they have $300 saved up. This is $300,000 in 1972 money, but they want a cool million. And how are they going to make a cool million? By selling $700,000 worth of cocaine. Mm-hmm. And who's going to buy the cocaine? Very likely. I mean, there's a, a multi-culti cast of people buying cocaine in this movie, but he's selling it in the hood. And so you, it forces you to take a side about capitalism. And it's very amoral about this because the movie itself doesn't ask you to, it doesn't judge young blood police character. However, Curtis Mayfield, and this is what's important about, most important about Superfly, without the Superfly soundtrack, there is no Saturday Night Fever. Mm-hmm. It's that simple because Melvin Man Peebles, he sold the Watermelon Man soundtrack before he put the movie out. He was yeah. the first person to do that. And Melvin couldn't sing. I'll say this on the record. Melvin, you could not sing. Um, <laughs> and they did the same thing with Superfly. They sold the album before the movie came out. And the album was huge. That's when they realized every movie has to have a soundtrack that we can promote because it's like advertising the movie without the movie. Like, you know, when they stopped, when they banned liquor ads, Smirnoff made Smirnoff Ice. So when they could do a commercial with Smirnoff Ice, and when they said Smirnoff Ice, they really meant Smirnoff Vodka. But you saw Smirnoff the name, you didn't think Smirnoff Ice, you thought vodka. So it was one of the ways that marketing put something into your head that was a misdirection. Yeah. With these albums, since Superfly was such a hit, in fact, Superfly the album made more money than Superfly the movie. And that doesn't so they surprise started me. doing. And so with Saturday Night Fever, that blew it into the stratosphere. Saturday Night Fever soundtracks, I think, was at one point the best-selling album ever at one point. But without that, there would not be a Saturday Night Fever because no one really thought to make an album of songs because usually it's a score, right? You know, an orchestral score. No one really thought to make an album that was just all songs and put it out as a tie-in to a film. But but Mayfield had another short idea in this movie. He is telling you things on a soundtrack that you may may run counter to what you're seeing on the screen. So, you know, you're seeing a drug dealer, Curtis is in your ear saying, you know, Eddie, you should have known better. Or, you know, Freddie's dead because yeah. he's, you know. So the movie is sometimes in an argument with itself, which I find fascinating because it- Because there's that and then there's Pusher Man. Right. Pusher Man is both goofy. things. Yeah. But Pusher Man is both things. It's kind of like what I talk about how the movie is going in two different directions. Pusher Man at one point is a boast. It's a brag, you know. I'm doing all this stuff. But if you listen to the song, if you're on the other side of the equation of that song, you're in trouble. And he's telling you this. I'm telling you that, you know, I'm your friend, but, you know, Freddie's dead. So there's this interesting tension between it that a lot of movies don't even take the time to be that complex. And so that's why I think I consider Superfly to be kind of, like I said, the Citizen Kane of Blaxploitation. Also, the the fashion trend, I, I made this comment that when I was three years old, my mother dressed me in the Superfly coat and I have a picture of it. 
<laughs> the Superfly coat and hat. It's Russ coat and hat to go with my Rust Afro. I had red hair. The year after Superfly came out, I had this outfit. <laughs> it was a fashion thing. People wore the clothes. In fact, some of the clothes were actually brought from people's closets. They brought their own stuff to the set. They, they wore their own clothes. And they started this whole fashion trend. And it's the 70s. And as you know, 70s clothing, you look back on it and you go, oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> but, well, it's like um, a movie like Willie Dynamite. Yes, where... he's got fur coats on every five. He changes more clothes than Betty Davis yeah. in that movie. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> yeah. It's, it's kind of the same, isn't it? He's swanning mm-hmm. around just like that. The, the coats and the green and the gold. You forget for a minute that it's actually a serious movie in a lot of ways. Right. And, and, and Diane's hands actually rips your heart out in that, too. Yes. And great, and great actor, actress taken from us too soon. Um, I would love to have seen her Claudine, not that Diane Carroll's bad in Claudine. Claudine is my favorite romantic comedy of all time. So I demanded to have a chapter of, about Claudine in the book. I said, I would not write the book if I couldn't have that chapter. Um, but Diana Sands, it's interesting because uh, Gilbert Moses is a Black director. Um, I tried to distinguish in the book when a Black person was behind the camera because a lot of times they were not. There, there were enough times when they were. Gilbert Moses had come off of directing um, A Supposed Die a Natural Death which is Melvin People's Tony-nominated musical. For a guy that couldn't sing and couldn't read music and played all of his songs through a kazoo, he got a lot of knowledge out of that kazoo. He got all these Tony nomination albums that sold. But Gilbert Mar- Moses was the Black director. And, and Zanuck and Brown, you know, had, Zanuck had just been fired by his dad. They started their own company, and they were making these exploitation movies, you know, like Bully Dynamite. And Elvis Mitchell, in his documentary, he says, Bully Dynamite is not a Black exploitation movie because it is a serious look at that this that pimping and that Diana Sands being, I'll never forget this. I saw this movie on, uh, on the deuce on 42nd street when I was a kid and she had a line that she says, you know, consider me a Ralph Nader for hookers. And I had no idea who Ralph Nader was as a kid. I knew what a hooker was, but I didn't know what Ralph, who Ralph Nader was, but I thought it was such a great line because really that's what she is. <laughs> if you think about it, she's this advocate. She says, well, if you don't want to get out of the life, go into business for yourself. So she says, know, Ralph, yeah, she says that, yeah. you know, and I, as a kid to this day, I will always remember when I first heard her say that line, you consider me Ralph Nader for hookers. I will always, whenever I saw her as a kid, I'm like, oh, it's Ralph Nader for hookers. <laughs> and I see her in uh, Raisin in the Sun. Oh, it's Ralph Nader for hookers. She, she made such an effect on me. And also she was such a good character and such a damn good actor. Yes. Um, and that and a landlord, which landlord was on TV when I was a kid a lot. That was my two movies with Diana Sands who just affected me in so many ways growing up. That's why I wanted to write about her. Well, yeah, you said something about how she holds something back or there's an interior. You don't know what it is. Yeah, I thought that was perfect. It was was something I couldn't put into words about her. There'll just be a little bit of pain in that cock of the eyebrow or the eyes seem to be holding something, remembering something. There's a mystery. And, and there are a lot of actors, especially old school actors, who have that aura of mystery with her, not giving you every single thing. A lot, I mean, I, I look at, I think about Robert Mitchum, for example, who has all this tough exterior, but really, if you watch some of his movies um, where he's a tough guy, you can kind of see there's something else going on. You know, or Paul Newman is probably an a, a even better example of someone who you see enough, but there's something there that you ain't getting. Yeah, And it's fascinating because you want to know what that is. And that's what holds you. I think that's what makes you a star. Is I so too. the fact that it can hold you. Something that you, you can't explain. You said you couldn't put it into words. 
but you knew it was there. It's, that's maybe in a way with the unique quality that makes you a star. That's right. what star power or it or whatever it is you want to call it is. Yeah, that's that's a huge heartbreaker for me. And, and, and the landlord was the first time I'd seen her. That line, I mean, I guess it's a combination of Bill Gunn's lines and how she says him. That yeah. at the end when she has the, the child with Bo Bridges and, you know, she says, you know, something about him being easy. Like I you. want him to grow up casual. Casual, is that what it white, is? So he yeah. casual, like his daddy. Yeah. yeah. And she, she, that, she turns the knife in that line. Just, and she really twists the knife in that line. I had to stop it and sit and then go back. I made, yeah. I made you know? a comparison in my piece on Diana Sands that I've written at Big Bean Venoms, and I made a comparison to The Great Gatsby with a line where uh, Daisy Buchanan says she wants to have a girl because she'll grow up a beautiful little fool. And there's a, there's a, a double-edged sword to that line. Yeah. And I think it's the same thing when she says, I want him to grow up casual like his daddy. as a double-edged sword to that line. Because if he grows up white, he's going to have the casualness of it like his daddy. But you know, we know the truth that he's not just all white. Mm-hmm. And we know the truth that Daisy Buchanan, a beautiful little fool, you know, she suffers mightily in this book. So you know, it's, it's you know, a double-edged sword of a line. Yeah. And, and then the whole casual thing of, well, you had to learn so much, you know, with, with us. Right. Will your child, will our child learn? Will they know, right. do better? Yeah. Yeah, I, I talked to Lee Grant about that that movie and, and about shampoo. But my mother loved Lee Grant. I mean, it was one of my mom's favorite actors was Lee Grant. And also she's in Detective Story, one of the great noirs. Yeah, she's another one of those sharp ones in many ways, I would say. Yeah. Oh, I mean, she's even sharper special. as a filmmaker than she is as an actor. I mean, she's just all around. Just you know, I, I, I love Lee Grant. Um, just the, the power that the, just what she did, the command that she had as as a woman in Hollywood. I mean, she's blacklisted unfairly, and she managed to come out of that and do all the things that she's done. Yeah, well, she could thrive. Yeah, yeah. So before I let you go, we do have to we do have to talk about Shaft because and you even say that Shaft is the theme song. Isaac Hayes kind of puts a bow on everything with that song. It says a lot in itself. Did you see Shaft when it came out? No. I, I, in fact, the funny thing is that I saw. I'm pretty sure I saw Shaft's big score. I'm sorry, Shaft in Africa before I saw Shaft. Also, remember, Shaft was on television, too, which is oh, yeah. crazy to even think about. But he had a TV show. Oh, the mystery thing. I, the he, he was on. He was on. It was a, what they call the mystery wheel. I remember back then you had on NBC, you had Columbo, McLeod and McMillan and wife. And on yeah. CBS, you had Jimmy Stewart as pre-Matlock, a.k.a. Hawkins and Shaft. And it was, CBS was doing weird things. They tried to make a TV show out of Blazing Saddles. They tried to make a TV show out of R-rated things that you could not put on television. And so yeah. for me, Shaft, I saw, I eventually saw Shaft, you know, older than some of the other Blastation movies I'd seen. But I thought he was the coolest dude I'd ever seen in my life. And I wanted to be John Shaft. And he had the coolest theme song, Isaac Hayes. He added those words to the song Shaft because you can't get Oscar consideration uh, the song's instrumental. That's why Freddy's Dead wasn't nominated for an Oscar in Superfly because there's no words in the movie. It's only on the album. So he added those words. It seems like it comes out of nowhere at the end of the song. You have three minutes of instrumental and you have Isaac Hayes talking for 40 seconds about Shaft. But those those 40 seconds of words, everybody remembers them. Everybody remembers exactly who Shaft is. And it describes Shaft. And in the opening of Shaft, Willie Hall, who plays the drums in Shaft, the theme song, he said that Isaac Hayes gave him a metronome set to Richard Roundtree's pacing in the opening sequence of the film. And so when you see Shaft come out of the 42nd Street 
MTA. And to this day, even though it doesn't look like it does in 1971, when I walk out of that station on 42nd Street, I hear Shaft in my head. Yeah. And so he was just the coolest brother I ever saw. And the one thing that broke my heart writing this book is that I realized I discovered his mustache was fake. Because all my life, I wanted to grow a Shaft mustache. And I could grow a decent mustache. Yeah. I could grow a halfway decent mustache, but it looked nothing like that. Even to this day, I'm 53 and I still can't grow a mustache as thick and bushy as Shaft's. And it wasn't real. And he couldn't either. So now, yeah. He couldn't either. And it wasn't real. And so, but the thing was that... Chef hit two sweet spots for me. Number one, I love noir. In fact, noir is my favorite genre of movie. I love detective movies. I, I read all these. I read Chandler as growing up. I read all these mystery novels. I love the detective genre. And Chef was a black detective, something I had not seen before. And he was suave and smooth. And he, you know, had wore the leather jacket. I had a Chef coat. I have a Chef. I have a three-quarter coat. I call it the Chef coat. The three-quarter leather coat. That's what um, it is forever. Yeah. Yeah. And so he just basically, and also on top of that, he fit into places that normally Black people didn't fit in in New York. They talk about how Gordon Parks technically was Shaft, and he was able to go to the village and go to Harlem and be equally accepted in both places. And he could walk the line with the white world and the Black world, and Shaft, John, John Shaft's character, could do that. But I read Shaft, the book, Ernest Tideman had written, and it's a more hard-boiled kind of detective fiction than the movie. The movie is a, a tamer, a kinder, gentler Shaft than what we get in the seven novels that Edwards Tannerman wrote, wrote uh, about Shaft. But in the same token, he's not a pushover or anything like that. It's just fascinating to watch him. And as a kid, my idea of masculinity was Shaft, for better and for worse. And so that's why it was such an influence. I mean, also, it was the first time a Black person won an Oscar that was not an acting Oscar. Yeah. And in fact, it's the third Oscar by a Black person because you had Sydney, you had Academy Daniel and Sydney, and then you have Isaac Hayes, who won for a song. He was nominated for score and song. Now, Duke Ellington and Quincy Jones have been nominated for song Oscars and score Oscars, but didn't win in the past before this. So you have that cool song. You have the cool brother. He's a detective. He takes no guff. He's a sex machine. He has the coolest song ever written. And he just has a presence. Again, we talk about star power. This is yes. Richard Roundtree's debut. This is the first movie he made. It's unbelievable. And he was, before that, he was a member of the Negro uh, Ensemble. So he was an actor before this. But this was his debut. And you look at this. I mean, he is iconic. Even yes. to this day, when they remade those Shaft movies, the Samuel L. Jackson, they're terrible. Who is still John Shaft, the original? It's still Richard Roundtree. Yeah, he shows up. He's the yeah. longest running Black character. And I mean, you know, you don't, you can't beat him just walking right out into traffic, getting mad at cabs for daring to get in his way. Which which was not, Gordon Parks told Richard Round, this is the first day of screening, but they, they shot them on the first day of Shaft in January 1971. He told them to just walk out on the street because Shaft is too cool to look both ways before he crosses the street. So Richard Round, you could have gotten run over on the it, first day of shootings. He had but to really no be Shaft. John Shaft. <laughs> no one was going to hit John Shaft, as we know now. <laughs> yeah. We have the proof. See, he just had we to show proof. up. Just walk out yeah. there. You'll see. You'll see. Yeah. No yeah. one's going to hit you. Yeah. <laughs> I, I have I have made that walk. That's the beginning of Shaft because it's pretty much geographically correct. A lot of times they don't do that. You know, I've, I've done that walk. Ah, just, that's Just great. to be, just because. I'm silly. I went to Shaft's house at 55 Jane Street in the village too. Uh, 
Oh, it's fun. I love that stuff. I mean, especially when it isn't comically wrong geographically. It's great to be able to experience it. It's great well, to I, walk down 42nd Street and go to his office and actually, this is the this is how you get the chef's office for real. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's actually not a fiction, okay. Now, <laughs> well, I could go on with you forever about this, about these movies, but it was so great to have this conversation with you. So great to read your book. I actually have gone back and read passages. You're a wonderful writer. Just oh, wonderful so flow much. and humor. So, so much. you know, informed and good storyteller. I, I couldn't recommend it more highly. Thank you. And also one, one final thing. I'm doing a Spotify playlist of the songs because obviously Black Rotation, one of the things it's most known for is its music. So I'm going to have a Spotify playlist. And yes, I'm putting some love and peoples on it. <laughs> Play them loud. You're very kind. <laughs> <laughs> so oh, that's, that's one of the big things that, you know, I have a in the back of the book, I have my Top yes. 10 Blaspitation songs. I'm sure that's going to get me some controversy, but, and some arguments. <laughs> you put Shaft at the top. I think though, I think you'll be allowed. Well, that, that, you'll be allowed you can't, things. you can't not put Shaft at the top. I mean, you just had to because simply right. because it's, it's the song that, and it's also the only Oscar winning song, but it's right. song that kicked off this genre. Without Shaft, there really isn't the blueprint for right. a, a good hero, Blaspitation hero song. All right. So you heard it here. You got to check out the book. You got to check out the playlist. And I'm going to put it all in the show notes. Thank you so much, Odie. Thank you so much. To learn more about Odie and his book, Black Caesars and Foxy Cleopatra's A History of Black Exploitation Cinema, go to watchingclassicmovies.com. If you're enjoying the show, please review and rate wherever you listen. I deeply appreciate your support. Thank you for listening. This is Kendall Kruver, watching classic movies. Until next time.